The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Welcome to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan, and I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. Anna Lemke. Anna Lemke, MD, is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. She is medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, program director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. In 2016, she published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. It was highlighted in the New York Times as one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic. Her forthcoming book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, comes out this summer and explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine overloaded world. Dr. Lemke, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. It's not often that I get a chance to sit with someone who's also uh, a psychiatrist in the field of addiction medicine. Uh, most of us are pretty consumed by our positions and our patient loads, and I think the desperations and, and the, the urgency of our clients and their families uh, preclude a lot of uh, socializing. But you and I have been uh, in the trenches of the uh, opioid epidemic and the benzodiazepine epidemic for at least the last decade. Uh, two uh, epidemics uh, caused by big pharma uh, and uh, by overprescribing. And before I ask uh, the real question I'm dying to know, which is what has the emotional impact been on you as a human being uh, going through uh, the past 10 years? Uh, I guess I'll start with the book. Um, I love the book and I love the title. Uh, drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. And I wonder if you could say something about um, what inspired you to write the book? I was inspired to write the book because I was seeing so many patients who were being harmed by physicians. And these were people I, I know and folks who um, you know, were well-educated and very well-intentioned who due to their ignorance uh, of addiction were inadvertently harming patients. I will also add that I was among their ranks early in my career. Um, you know, although I graduated from a very prestigious medical school and did a psychiatry residency when I went into practice, I knew nothing about addiction. I overprescribed benzodiazepines and stimulants myself. Mm -hmm. And um, didn't really learn about addiction until um, some years into my early career. So I wrote the book in order to educate 
um, not just physicians, but also consumers about how it is that a healthcare system that set out to help people became the engine uh, for harming people. So this was an iatrogenic problem. This was a problem caused by overprescribing. And when they figured out that uh, there's too many pain pills circulating, they stopped the prescribing of pain pills. And what did they do to broaden treatment services for all of the people who were hooked on pain pills that they had been uh, so generously prescribing? Well, um, first of all, let me say that, that, that opioid prescribing has gone down, but we're still prescribing three times as many opioids as we did in the 1990s and far more than any other developed country in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, have been, there has been progress in terms of um, creating more access to addiction treatment, certainly more awareness and better education on opioid prescribing. But I think what you're getting at is that one of the compensatory mechanisms as opioid prescribing went down was that benzodiazepine prescribing went up. Absolutely. And I think of the uh, primary care doc in the Midwest uh, or the primary care doc, uh, you know, anywhere in the country, really, who has about 15 minutes per patient. And uh, it's his job or her job to manage the person's anxiety and insomnia and chronic pain and de-prescribe their pain pills with no clear recommendations or guidelines really on how to take somebody off 10 years of Percocet or Oxycontin and say they take them away too quickly. uh, And uh, then you're left with more anxiety, more insomnia and more pain, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I advocated early for was deprescribing clinics and or deprescribing teams, which openly acknowledges what a heavy lift it is, both for patient consumers and physicians to taper people down on opioids and benzodiazepines. This is not something to be carried out lightly. It's very difficult. It requires a lot of support for patients and providers. And it's something that we as a healthcare system are obliged to invest in because we created the problem in the first place. Absolutely. And I love your idea of a deprescribing clinic. Um, I've never seen one. Uh, so there are a few that have um, popped up around the country, um, individuals who now dedicate 100% of their time to helping people get off of opioids in particular, um, and who have become a referral center for folks in, prim- in primary care in particular, who just do not have the bandwidth, understandably, to take on that, that role. And then informally, practices like my own have become de facto deprescribing clinics um, for people on opioids and benzodiazepines. I see a lot of addiction to nicotine, alcohol, cannabis, stimulants, uh, pornography, but um, in addition to treating out-and-out addiction, um, we treat a lot of physiologic dependence and do a lot of deprescribing. I love that I love that that is a concept and I love that you do it. Uh, I have one patient. I remember she left me a voicemail message and it was a woman in her probably early 60s and she had multiple neck and back surgeries, had been prescribed pain pills for 15 years. And she said, my doctor has cut me off. I'm in terrible withdrawal. Uh, He says I'm taking too many. Uh, I can't take them anymore. And he referred me to a pain clinic and they don't prescribe any uh, narcotics what do I do? And then she says, she started to cry on the phone and the message machine. She said, what did I do wrong? I don't understand what I did wrong. And that's 
so typical of the messages that I think you and I receive, right? Um, Absolutely. And it's a real tragedy. And it's also an iatrogenic tragedy, right? That these so-called opioid refugees, people who were prescribed opioids for many years by their doctors, um, and who now, because the risks of opioids outweigh the benefits, need to taper off. So that's you know, that in many instances, that's the right medical decision, but yes. nonetheless, they shouldn't be abruptly discontinued. They need to be supported in that process. In my experience, for an individual who's been taking opioids for decades or years or whatever the time period is for chronic pain, they often need an equal amount of time getting off of them. So this is a, a slow process. Tapers should, um, you know, in some cases last years as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's just that the, the suffering that we've witnessed, uh, it feels inhumane. It feels cruel. They feel abandoned by the healthcare system. And I agree. I think that the doctors don't have addiction training and they don't know what to do. Uh, I remember speaking to some uh, fellowships in pain management. I think this was back in 2005 and they didn't have a single buprenorphine provider. Uh, this is a whole clinic uh, at uh, a local big university teaching hospital. And they didn't even, some of them didn't even really know what buprenorphine was. And they were trying to take people off 10 to 20 years of narcotics. And that wasn't really an option. So it just, it's alarming. Uh, yes, I, I agree with you. I also, you know, when, when I look back at how much time was spent in medical school, learning how to get people on medications, but no time spent learning how to get them off, especially, you know, habit forming, dependence forming medications like benzodiazepines, like opioids, but also um, all kinds of psychotropics. You know, we were taught nothing about tapering effects or for example, um, which is just something we sort of learned on the job when our parent, you know, patients had these horrible reactions to abrupt discontinuation. So clearly our whole medical education needs to teach not just how to start medicines, but also how to appropriately and compassionately get people off of them. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I really like your stance. Uh, Doctors are typically well-meaning. They didn't mean to hurt the patients. They just weren't trained and they weren't educated. I mean, I had a uh, physician bring me his son who was 33 years old. And this was a really bright young man, uh, had just uh, uh, graduated an MBA program two years prior, but uh, had uh, hurt himself in undergrad uh, playing football, I had a couple of knee surgeries and got hooked on pain pills. And then ultimately when the pain pill supply dried up, he turned to heroin. And this doctor brought me his son and uh, he, I said, has he had any treatment before? And he said, yeah, he's been to detox four times. He still mm-hmm. thought that detox was a state-of-the-art treatment for someone with an active heroin addiction. Uh, I mean, he had no knowledge of, uh, of Suboxone uh, or no knowledge of methadone. Um, yeah, I think even beyond the awareness of buprenorphine, uh, suboxone and methadone is just sort of an intuitive negative gut reaction that people have to using opioids to treat opioid use disorder. Um, and that's the bit that we have to overcome. And the way to overcome that is by showing people the evidence that if you look at the multiple placebo controlled trials across decades and continents using um, opioid agonist therapy to treat opioid addiction, you find overwhelming evidence that it works. And I I think if if we could just communicate that to folks, they would be less resistant to the concept. I think you're right. I don't think they know the research. Um, 
I saw, I think it was JAMA 2020, Sarah Wakeman had a study, and I think it was 45,000 people, most of them insured uh, across America. And uh, 64% of people, uh, this study ended in uh, 2017, 64% of uh, people that were opioid use disordered were referred to behavioral treatment alone. Only 12%, this is back only four years ago, only 12% received methadone or buprenorphine. And like you say, the research, the evidence states uh, that 50% less chance of a, an overdose death and 50% less chance of relapse if you're using buprenorphine or methadone. Those are magnificent statistics. And I mean, I've, I've been a buprenorphine provider since 03. And I don't know about your experience, but wow, most of my patients, I mean, they don't get high on it. They just feel normal. And within uh, you know the first week, they're feeling no cravings and no withdrawal and they're, they're back. They're in their marriages and they're uh, present for their kids. And then they can really set about finding out who they are and treating any underlying uh, you know, anxiety or depression or, um, you know, develop some kind of uh, ability to connect. But um, I thought that was really sad and heartbreaking that we have treatment that's evidence-based, that's first line, that's still not being used. Yeah, it is. It is sad. And of course, you know, I've seen people whose lives have absolutely been saved by these medications. Although I've also, you know, seen them not work for some people, which mm -hmm. is why I always advocate that state-of-the-art treatment should include all of the options. It should include right. medications. It should include psychosocial interventions. There are many paths to the top of the mountain. And, you know, to have an equitable and fair healthcare system, we have to make sure that every person has access to all of the different types of treatment. So if they try one and it doesn't work for them, they have access to another one. Absolutely. And I think there's, if we could just broaden the available options at the substance abuse uh, uh, or the uh, chemical dependency treatment centers, uh, that would be magnificent. There yeah. is good news on that front. I mean, I have seen more and more, for example, residential treatment centers that used to not um, provide opioid agonist treatment. Um, now providing that, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the merger of Hazelden and Betty Ford was really a revolution. And prior to that, um, you know, those institutions did not universally provide medication-assisted treatment or opioid agonist therapy, and now they do. Um, so I think we're, you know, by small incremental steps, we're heading in a better direction. But you know, we're, we still have a long way to go. I love that you mentioned Hazelden Betty Ford. I remember uh, maybe five years ago, that was the only residential treatment program I would call uh, because not only would they put somebody on methadone or buprenorphine, they believed in maintenance therapy, which is what the research is pointing to. And they could allow the patients to take buprenorphine or methadone and live in a halfway house for six to 12 months. Whereas I could get somebody occasionally on buprenorphine or methadone, but then the halfway house system would say, well, they can't take it here. And I'm like, wow, but maintenance is the way to go. So what do I do with this young person who also has an alcohol problem or a marijuana problem or a cocaine problem? And they really need the structure of a halfway house living. They're not ready to be independent and sent back to a drinking girlfriend or a drug using circle of friends. Where can I send them where they can stay on these life-saving, potentially life-saving medications? Yes, I mean, you're, you're speaking to an important problem that persists, um, including in our jails and prisons, right? People yeah. who 
have been stabilized on methadone maintenance or buprenorphine. And then uh, because of life circumstances, they end up in jail or prison and then no longer have access to those medications. Although again, I'm seeing some shift there, some jails and prisons around the country now offering buprenorphine in particular, including injectable buprenorphine um, in that setting, which is just all good news. That's really exciting. Um, Yeah. The emotional impact on you um, over the last decade as a human being, um, have you ever witnessed this much human suffering? You know, I mean, I do witness a lot of suffering, um, whether it's more or less than humans have always suffered. I don't know. Um, I guess I also see a lot of redemption and hope, though. Um, and, and I don't, sometimes people ask me, is, you know, is my work depressing? And it's really not depressing at all. You know, it's really inspiring because I see people who I consider to be among the most courageous people on the planet, that is people with addiction, who are bravely facing the path of recovery and get on that path and absolutely transform their lives and transform the lives of those around them. So I see a lot of hope and redemption. Um, And a life in recovery is such a great life, you know? Um, So, um, so I guess that's how I would answer that question. I don't know. How about you? Um, I think I love your answer. I love the answer of um, uh, the hope and the redemption that keeps you coming back. I mean, it really makes you believe in the resiliency of the human spirit. Um, I think it was pretty dark there for a couple of years. And I agree the last two years, uh, the calls to my private practice have become less frequent and less urgent. But for, if I say, wow, uh, go back to 2015, um, every day, these desperate calls from uh, people's parents and the young people, like, please help me, please call me back. I just got out of jail. I've got a three-year-old son. I'm a single parent dad. If I don't get on buprenorphine, I'm going to relapse. I don't want to die. Please call me. Or my daughter needs a place to go. I don't know where to send her. We have no idea. We go on the internet. We, we can't figure out what to do. Do we go to detox? Do we go to rehab? Buprenorphine, what is that? Methadone, I Vivitrol shot, you know, so much desperation, so much pain. And it, it was pretty urgent because these kids had been, they had been overdosing or, uh, and then like released within like a 10 hour period from the hospital. And I'm thinking this kid is 21 or 23 years old and you're sending him back home. Mom just found him on the bathroom floor. So I think, I think it was the, the um, hopeless feeling for the moment that, Hey, this is useless suffering. It shouldn't have happened in the first place. And Nobody seems to know what the answer is, and it's treatable. This opioid use disorder is treatable, highly treatable. We have medications. Why aren't we using them, and what is all this stigma? Uh, So it was heartbreaking and enraging, Um, and I agree with you. Uh, I love your word, courage. These folks are so courageous for what they've battled, and if they get through it, and when they get through it, wow, they can feel so much self-respect and so much pride that they they were intrepid against the system, against the stigma. Um, and they hung in there long enough until they found somebody uh, to help them. Um, I love, I love your, it's a message of hope and it's a message of courage. And I think it's, it's very thoughtful. Now, if we can, let's um, switch over a little bit and talk about benzodiazepines. 
Sure. I understand that you recently starred last year in an award-winning documentary called Medicating Normal. Yes, I did. It was a great privilege. Uh, tell me a little bit about the film. I saw it myself, um, but I don't know if the listeners have, uh, and the message of the film and um, what it was like uh, meeting the individuals uh, uh, that were telling their story, their stories of uh, being uh, prescribed benzodiazepines long-term and the, the consequences of that? Well, um, it was, the film is essentially exploring this problem of over, over prescribing psychotropic medication, not just benzodiazepines, but also antipsychotics, antidepressants, anxiolytics, just more broadly, uh, uh, like a really steering look at what happens to people's lives when they end up on five, 10, 15 different psychotropic medications, people who are, you know, functioning um, in their lives, then develop depression or developed anxiety, went to seek treatment from a mental health care provider and ended up, ended up on a ton of medications and doing no better. And in some instances worse. So it was really moving because, um, you know, again, it was moving because it was tragic that, that they went looking for help and ended up, you know, on a bunch of pills that weren't helping. But also these individuals, you know, again, these were stories of redemption, um, people kind of realizing that the medicines weren't working, getting off of them, waking up again, their brains kind of getting back online, and then um, trying to, you know, put their lives back together. So, um, and I was interviewed for it because I have been a long time um, vocal um, let's say, advocate for mm -hmm. more judicious prescribing. Um, I've also written about the problem of pathologizing everyday life, the ways in which we take what is really ordinary human suffering and make it a disorder. Mm -hmm. um, once we make it a disorder, then we're obliged to treat it. And the way we treat things is to prescribe pills and how that gets us into this vicious cycle. So both, uh, I, you know, I and the, and the film have made a plea for not pathologizing everyday life and just acknowledging that life is hard and there is suffering and it's normal. Um, and also um, just to be very cautious when we do prescribe medications and realize that they don't work for everybody. They can be life-saving for some, but the side effects are, are serious and, and can really harm. And I wonder if you could define benzodiazepines and Z-drugs uh, for the listening audience if they might not know what benzos are. So benzo benzodiazepines are uh, medications like Xanax, Valium, Clonopin, Ativan. Um, they are in the class of sedative hypnotics. They're typically prescribed for anxiety and insomnia. Um, there's evidence to support their use short-term, like two weeks. Um, there's no evidence to support their use long-term, and yet they're often prescribed not just for many weeks, but for months, years, and decades. They work by binding a receptor called the GABA receptor, which is the same receptor that alcohol binds. And they essentially bind and stimulate that receptor to increase the amount of GABA in the brain. And GABA is our calming neurotransmitter. The Z drugs are things like um, Zolpidem or Ambien. And um, they're often touted as non-addictive alternatives, but in fact, they're also highly addictive. Um, they bind the GABA receptor as well and function in much the same way um, that benzodiazepines and alcohol do. You know, it's, it's interesting. I wonder why we throw pills at people. 
when you know I, I was I was recently uh, over the last year introduced to an app. It's a free app uh, that the VA has studied, and there's a lot of research to support it. The Coach CBTI app for people with insomnia. And, right. you know, they've, they've studied it and it works better than, uh, you know, CBT for insomnia works better at the six month mark than any of the benzos or the Z drugs. Um, yeah. And that's true, by the way, for many of our psychosocial interventions that they don't work as quickly as medications do, but they tend to work better in the long run because they teach people habits and skills that last a lifetime. Whereas the medications that we prescribe tend to work quickly but then they stop working over time and they can have serious unintended consequences. Yeah, it's, it's true for um, treating uh, all of the psychiatric disorders, uh, anxiety disorders anyway, right? Like uh, if you take a look at panic disorder, uh, medications work just as effectively uh, as cognitive behavioral therapy. So why not try CBT first? The same with OCD, right? Whether it's exposure therapy or cognitive behavior therapy, PTSD, uh, uh, there's evidence that uh, benzos actually make PTSD worse if given at the time of trauma and prevent the uh, person's uh, uh, brain uh, from healing from the trauma. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, um, it's interesting that so quick to throw medication at people. Yeah. And the reason for that is that our medical infrastructure incentivizes prescribing pills. It's entirely designed for prescribing pills and doing procedures. And that is what doctors get paid to do. And that is what the medical infrastructure is designed to provide efficiently and effectively. Doctors don't get paid for teaching their patients about prevention. We don't get paid for doing psychotherapy. We don't get paid for mind-body work. Or if we do get paid, we get paid a fraction of what we get paid for prescribing pills. And that is the fundamental problem. It's the perverse incentives inside of medicine that are driving it and that are largely fed behind the scenes by the pharmaceutical industry and the device industry. That is a really important point, and it's really sad. It's very dark. Uh, yeah, hard to change. Hard, hard to, change. to change. Very entrenched, all the way from our lobbyists in Washington to our local pharmacy. And I don't know about you, but prescribing medication only, I find it boring. Uh, if that was all I was doing all day, every day, like the most fun I ever have is, uh, you know, doing um, uh, individual therapy, or I run um, modern analytic group therapy for people who are already in recovery, you know, put your thoughts right. and feelings into words and facilitate the emotional connected connectedness between patients. And um, yeah, so on that note, uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we are with uh, Dr. Anna Lemke, and this is Recovery, the Hero's Journey, and I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan, and we'll be right back. Thank you. Benzodiazepines, the epidemic we aren't talking about, is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This very comprehensive video describes the dangers of taking benzodiazepines and Z-drugs long-term and teaches how to de-prescribe them safely and effectively. We outline how to talk to your patients before, during, and after a long, slow Valium taper, how to build your patient a village of support, and offer a de-prescribing toolkit. Find out more about this package and what it includes. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com. Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. 
This comprehensive video covers how to talk to patients about three FDA-approved treatment options, the research behind each medication, and how to help patients choose the right medication for them. You'll learn everything you ever wanted to know about these treatment options to be able to treat patients in your office with ease. This video simplifies the prescribing of buprenorphine and includes buprenorphine home induction instructions for patients and pamphlets for patients and their families. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com for more information. You are listening to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. If you or someone you love struggles with a substance use disorder or prescription drug dependence and would like information about resources that can help, please contact one of the following organizations. The American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Now, back to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. So you're back uh, to Recovery, The Hero's Journey with Dr. Anna Lemke. And we left off, uh, Dr. Lemke and I, just talking about how rewarding it is as psychiatrists to do therapy and run groups uh, and do psychosocial interventions with patients as opposed to just writing a prescription. But I, I loved your Absolutely. point. I, I couldn't agree more. And not only that, but, you know, all that medical school. And the truth is you can learn how to prescribe psychotropics in about a year. Honestly, it's also not, you know, rocket science, as they say, but learning how to do effective psychotherapy, um, you know, it takes decades. It's, it's, it's a really subtle art and it's challenging and interesting. And I, I agree with you. It's the combination that I really like. I wouldn't want to mm -hmm. just be prescribing pills. Let me ask you, um, benzodiazepines and Z drugs, and that was a great explanation of what they are and what they do. Uh, what are the consequences of staying on them for uh, too long, longer than the two to four week uh, indication? Well, the major consequence is the risk of tolerance, needing more and more to get the same effect over time. The only solution for which is to either taper off of them or go to a higher dose. The problem with going to a higher dose is that there's no limit to that because then you'll develop tolerance at the higher dose and then you'll have to go higher and on and on. Right. And we know the risk of addiction um, is directly correlated with dose and duration of use. So the longer you're on them and the higher the dose, the more likely you are to become addicted to them. Now, addiction is different from pure physiologic dependence. They're related, but they're not the same thing. But of course, once patients develop a physical dependence, even if they're not yet addicted, that means that getting off can be very, very hard. And in some, in some cases, really, um, you know, just devastatingly hard. And I think that's what we're seeing more and more is this small subset of individuals who were put on a benzodiazepine for a minor um, medical condition, um, stayed on it for a long time and then decided they wanted to get off or found it wasn't working as well as it used to or working at all, or maybe even making their anxiety or insomnia worse, which it can do over time. Mm -hmm. And then found that getting off was near impossible. I have a lot of calls uh, from people like that. You know, I had a call uh, last month from a fellow 72-year-old uh, man who had Crohn's disease and a lot of uh, surgeries for intestinal blocks, developed um, insomnia and anxiety, was put on Ativan, I think, one milligram twice a day for years, and he's down to uh, half a milligram of Ativan at night, and he can't get off it. And his doctor said, just stop it. Just stop it. You're fine. And he can't. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. He, because his withdrawal is horrific. He gets, um, akathisia. He, he's restless. He can't sit still. He can't sleep if he tries to taper this half a milligram of Ativan. Um, he has breakthrough anxiety. He wakes up filled with dread and panic attacks in the morning. Uh, he says he's got GI complaints. I think they call it benzo belly. Um, yeah, he's, he can't think. He's got brain fog. So, and people also, you know, I'll have like a, a person get down to, you know, a quarter milligram of clonopin. Same thing. They can't stop it. Um, what would you do with patients that come to you and say, I am having trouble getting off this medication um, or, uh, you know, I'm on Xanax three milligrams a day for the last five years. I hear there is a, it's, it might worsen um, my uh, intellectual uh, memory, uh, my processing speed. It may even be at increased risk for Alzheimer's um, and I want to get off it. Or I've been on clonopin uh, for the past year and my anxiety is worsening and I am suicidal and I'm not functioning at school uh, anymore. What do you do with patients like that? What do you what do you say to them? What do you teach your med students and your psychiatry residents to do with these folks? The first thing I do is validate their experience because just like in the anecdote you described, where that patient um, talked about it with his doctor and his doctor said it's no big deal, you're only on half a milligram, just stop. That is that is very invalidating for patients who have struggled to taper down, or maybe who even themselves just stopped it and then went into withdrawal. And benzodiazepine withdrawal, as you know, can also be life-threatening. People can have mm-hmm. seizures and end up dead as a result of withdrawal. So the first thing that I do is I validate for my patient what their experience has been with benzodiazepines. I listen to what it's been and I validate it. When they tell me that they have really, really struggled to taper or get off, I say, yeah, it's really hard for some people. You're not alone. Then the second thing I usually do is I refer them to the Ashton manual. And as you know, Heather Ashton is really a hero in this field who um, herself decades ago discovered this population of individuals, which was kind of a hidden population. Now with social media, they're connecting with each other and that's a good thing. But in her day, you know, it was a hidden population Um, that she discovered of individuals dependent on benzodiazepines prescribed by their doctors who couldn't get off without really totally debilitating symptoms. And she worked with those individuals and documented how she got them off of it and, and including their actual taper schedules. And in addition, she wrote a good deal about benzodiazepines, how they work, what are the risks. So it's a really valuable document. It's free online. It's a great way for people to educate themselves about benzodiazepines. And it is basically the template that I use for the taper, which is to say, go slowly, Mm -hmm. take breaks, but don't go backwards. And one of the things that I've learned through time, and you probably do the same thing, is to warn my patients that when they first go down, they will have increased anxiety, but that's not the anxiety that they'll be left with. It is withdrawal-mediated anxiety, and once their brain recalibrates to the new lower dose, they will find that their anxiety returns to baseline. Or they may even find it gets better, right? Because what happens is the benzodiazepines can drive and worsen anxiety when people have been them 
on them for a long time. The other thing that I've learned to do, and these are just two little pearls from my clinical practice. Number one, I keep the same dosing schedule. So if that person is taking their benzodiazepine three times a day, I usually try to preserve that. Why? Because our brains are like little alarm clocks and Mm -hmm. we're used to seeing the drug when we're used to seeing the drug. So for as long as possible, I keep that schedule. And the other thing I do is a lot of folks who taper with the very first decrement, they'll go down by a lot. And the reason that they'll do that is because they figure, well, it's going to get harder when the dose gets smaller. I do the opposite. I go down by a little. Why? Because I want the patient to have a positive and validating experience to know that they can do it. And if I go down by too much with that first dose, they won't have that opportunity. I want them to know they can go down by a little bit. Initially, it'll be worse, but when they get to four weeks, they'll feel fine again that will give them confidence to pursue and go on with the taper. I love that because it's not a race, is it? No. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, they've been on it for 10 years. Like, what is the rush? And yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know what I think the rush is? And you probably, what do you think the rush is uh, for certain physicians wanting to get these people off um, the benzo quickly? Because I've got my own theory. Well, I mean, naturally, you know, naturally these there's a lot of anxiety in a patient who says this medicine's not not working for me in fact it's harming for me harming me and i want your help and then it's like oh it's harming you and i'm gonna i want to get you off it i don't want to be responsible for that so it's kind of like a little bit you know a medical legal concern yes but also i think it's a lack of of knowledge and understanding and tools because if we teach doctors how to do it again just like treating addiction it can be really rewarding Yes. You know, and these are great folks and they're lovely to work with and all of that. And they're desperate for the help. I mean, one of the things that really struck me when you were talking about all of the people calling you for help, we don't have enough doctors. Right. We don't. People. We don't. People right. don't have adequate access to mental health treatment, True. especially addiction and dependence treatment. Yes. So that's a big problem. That's why you and I are inundated. We, we don't have enough. Now, the hopeful bit is that we have fellowships now. Yes. Addiction fellowships that train doctors, and we have more and more young people wanting to do those fellowships. So that's awesome. Oh, this is exciting, and I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, Heather Ashton, and she made it easy for us. Like she if, did. right, she if you've got somebody, amazing. like you got somebody on three milligrams a day of Xanax, you turn to like page. Uh, she's got these schedules, the taper schedules already written out, like you said. So you just have to turn to like page sixteen. Okay convert three milligrams of uh, Xanax into 60 of Valium and then go down gradually. Um, she went down approximately, what, 10% of the, uh, of the dose, the, the standing dose, um, every two to four weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Until and she, I, yep. yep. And that's what I found is typically, I usually do every four weeks because I like the yeah. patients to have a period when they're not in like acute withdrawal. I can like have nice. a pause. And I find the first two weeks, they're still in withdrawal and the latter two weeks, they're feeling better. But I've yeah. had patients whom that was too slow, you know, yeah. and I've had patients whom that was too fast. So it's kind of, you know, making sure within reason that this is a patient centered approach. Well, that's refreshing, isn't it? So if you say the patient, you determine the rate of the 
the taper and you tell me how quickly uh, and how much we, uh, how quickly we go and how uh, big the percentage cut is every, and if you want to stay there for six weeks instead of four weeks, that's okay with me. Um, but yeah, and you, when, and you build their confidence around being able to do it too. I love it because they don't trust that we'll taper them slowly enough. They've had enough experience with physicians where their physician is going to rip off the bandaid. I also have a thought that physician, these, these patients tend to be so highly anxious um, and, and they, I think their anxiety is kind of contagious and the physician really doesn't want to wed himself to this anxious patient for mm-hmm. a year. And some of my tapers take a year. Oh, um, oh I've got people on year three of, of their benzo taper. This because, is refreshing. Yeah, yeah. And they've got a lot going on in their lives too. I and mean, other things yeah. too, you know, like grief and death and loss and other illnesses. And so, I mean, sometimes I have to like move people along. It's too slow, but usually I I try to, you know, go with the pace as long as we're headed in the right direction and I'm feeling good about it. So what do you tell the person who says to you, where do I go for help? My psychiatrist doesn't know anything about tapers and my primary care doc doesn't know anything either. How do I access? I have a lot of calls from people like that. I had two calls from Oklahoma uh, and one call from Oregon uh, this week. Uh, and I can't treat people who aren't in South Carolina or New York. So, yeah, what do you, how do they access help, right? Like, I didn't know uh, what else to do, except I think I gave them addiction, American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, and told them to call them or, or try to see if they could find an addiction psychiatrist in their area. Right. So, I mean, unfortunately, you know, it would be wonderful if we could say, go to the deprescribing center in your state and they will help you. You know, that would right. be great. And that's what we need, yes. but we don't have that. Yes. Um, so in lieu of, you know, knowing a specific provider in their area who can help them. And usually I don't know somebody because there aren't that many of us. Right. What I recommend that they do is educate themselves and educate their providers. So educate their primary care doctor, because I find most good docs are open to learning. And so yes. I say, you know, tell your provider about the, uh, the Ashton manual, um, yep. connect with benzo buddies online or the benzodiazepine Alliance for self for safe benzodiazepine prescribing. So there are now these grassroots organizations that have gotten together other people struggling with the same problems who can give you tips and advice. So if you're really motivated, what ends up happening is patients go in and they tell their doctor, now you need to write me a prescription for Mm -hmm. X lower dose. Because usually what they hear is, you don't need to taper. You can stay on that the rest of your life. You're doing fine. That's no problem. And if you want to stop, you can just stop it. There's no problem. And Mm -hmm. neither of those things is true. So benzodiazepines do have enormous side effects. People really should not be on them long-term. There's no evidence that they work long-term and there's mounting evidence of risk. So people should try to get off. We need to help them. And if your doctor doesn't know how to do that, educate yourself and educate your doctor. So one question about Xanax before I ask you about your next upcoming book. Uh, Xanax is uh, the uh, drug that is most abusable uh, of the benzodiazepine class. Uh, It is the drug that has the most emergency room uh, associated visits. It is implicated in one third of suicides. Uh, We think that it's the most addictive uh, benzo because it's uh, uh, the fastest acting and it has the biggest potency. I'm just wondering, why do we still have that on the market? I, like, I don't have an answer for that, and you don't have to comment on that, but I'm just, I'm astounded that we still have that, um, right? I mean, 
why we have all these me too drugs like we don't need more benzodiazepines and we don't need newer and more opioids we, mm-hmm. we have so many of these drugs and so many yeah. different potencies formulations delivery mechanisms you know they're they're made because they sell and there's a demand and so it's just responding to a demand it's really it's terrible um but that that's that's you know that's the world we live in so i don't have a good answer and i only have bad news on that front now you've got you know um, clandestine labs making their own designer benzodiazepines by combining things like clonopin and xanax to make clonazolam which is an even more potent even more deadly variety so just what we need. Um, I loved, really loved your uh, quote from uh, Medicating Normal. And it said, doctors have vilified emotional pain. It's become the doctor's responsibility to eliminate emotional suffering. And I loved that quote uh, because you're you're absolutely right. Um, Pain is part of life. And uh, that's how we grow right? We get uncomfortable. We get anxious. Maybe if we're anxious inside a relationship, it's a a red flag that we either need to go to couples counseling, individual counseling, or get out of the relationship. If we have work stress, maybe we can learn some uh, good boundaries or some good assertiveness skills or some delegation skills, or uh, maybe we need to leave leave the job. Um, It's not our job, I think, to medicate away people's um, uh, distress all the time, right? Uh, it's it's infantilizing. Also, it's it's very insulting to assume that they can't handle uh, you know pain in their life. Yeah, to me, you know, one of the biggest crimes of twentieth and twenty first century psychiatry is that we have told people if you are unhappy, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Not only is that not true, but it's incredibly isolating for people because they feel like I'm not happy. Like every day is not full of, you know, following my bliss. I haven't found <laughs> passion. You know, right. I, there must be something wrong with me. It's like, no, actually life is hard. And yeah. we all, and, and like, it's totally normal to wake up and like wonder what is it all about? And, and to yeah. feel like even when everything is, you know, going well in your life to kind of feel an existential dread or whatever it is, you know, a despair, we've told people that's not normal. And, and that's really, um, you know, that's really unfortunate. I think it's the experience of being human. Now, before you go, um, you have a forthcoming book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, coming out this summer. Can you give us a preview and tell us about the inspiration behind the book? The inspiration behind the book is my patients in recovery, who, as I mentioned before, are my heroes, which is why I love the name of your podcast. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that we are living in a really unprecedented time in human history in that we are insulated from many painful experiences because of modern technology. And also because of modern technology, we have access to a virtually infinite variety um, with increasing potency of high dopamine substances, which makes us all vulnerable to addiction. And navigating this world will, will require a totally new way of thinking about how we consume um, any substance, any pleasure-giving substance, and also just how we make a life worth living. And so I really hold up um, people in recovery as modern-day prophets for how to figure out how to live in the world. I think people who are in recovery have a wisdom that we can all benefit from. And that's what I talk about. I combine the neuroscience of addiction in sort of easy to understand metaphors with my patients' stories of addiction and recovery 
as a toolkit, essentially, for the rest of us to figure out how to navigate this dopamine overloaded world. Wow. If I can imagine that if there is a person in recovery listening to this, um, you have just really uh, uh, validated their experience on this planet, their emotional pain, their distress, uh, as well as really complemented all the recovery work that they've done. And for them to believe that they are mentors and prophets, what a magnificent thing to imagine. I mean, they do so much recovery work on acceptance, don't they? And uh, I had a patient last week who said, I'm just going to turn it over, you know, That's right? <laughs> life, life on life's terms, baby. Yeah, right? And I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah. Um, note to self, you know, yeah. that could apply to three right. different things going on with right. me today, right? Um, I know it's, it's sort of embarrassing to admit as a psychiatrist <laughs> that like, like I learn a lot from my patients, right? I mean, I, I like to think I help them, but the truth is I'm taking <laughs> notes too, right? I'm like, oh, yes. that's good. And, and the, the, the book is actually a little bit about that, how I sort of took some of the tools I learned from patients and tried to implement them in my own life as just a human being, but also as a parent of teenagers. Um, you know, the themes that I kept seeing over 20 years of seeing patients with addiction who get into recovery, things like truth telling, I got really fascinated by that. Like, what is it about telling the truth that is so fundamental to recovery? So I delved into the neuroscience and the sort of philosophy. And I, one of my chapters is all about radical truth telling and why it's fundamental, not just to recovery, but to a life well lived for any of us. So that's kind of the, the sort of structure of the book, these like pearls of wisdom from people in recovery and how we can understand them from the neuroscience perspective, and then how we can implement them in our own lives. Oh, I just I absolutely love that. I think, um, yeah, there's something very healing uh, and freeing about saying, uh, you know, I am Ben and I have I have problem with uh, uh, Xanax or with heroin. Uh, or, you know, if you're a woman and you're talking to your sponsor or you're in a meeting and you're saying, uh, um, I drove with my kids uh, drunk in the back of the car. I screamed at my kids. Um, uh, I wasn't present for them during my drinking days. There's something wonderful about that because it's integrating um, all the different parts of ourselves that so often, uh, you know, we walk around trying to put a mask on to hide these parts of ourselves, right? And that's a lot of energy. And then we feel like an imposter. People don't right. really know. So mm -hmm. to talk about my character defects or to talk about my fears or my resentments, it's mm -hmm. very integrating, isn't it? So all of a sudden you have a whole person that's honest, right. that you can trust. Yes. And I think these are the people with depth. And I hope that they see themselves as courageous as you see them. I, I do. I, I think I hope they do too. I really hope they do. Well, Dr. Anna Lemke, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Um, I think you're the whole deal. You've got the intelligence, you've got the compassion, and you're a, a, a just a, an advocate extraordinaire. So thank you so right very much. Right back at you. Right back I at you. I appreciate that. It's wonderful <laughs> to talk to another uh, a psychiatrist in addition to Yeah, it's medicine. really nice. Yeah, it has been really nice. Well, thank you so very much, and um, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, The Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.